The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. And pray with me, please. Yes, Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his life and ministry, for his sacrificial death in our place, his resurrection from the dead, and for his ascension to the throne where he rules and reigns over his kingdom, giving us the Holy Spirit, giving us the Spirit as a seal of salvation and equipping us for a life that glorifies you. So, Lord God, we, we, give, you, we give you the praise. And we ask that you would give us all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you for the sacrament of the bread and cup for the forgiveness of sin and the grace that nourishes our souls. And now we give thanks, Lord, for your word and ask that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in Acts chapter 21. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. Paul has he's made his way to Caesarea with all of the, the various warnings along the way. And like Jesus... His face is is set like flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing that that he has a course set before him that he must run. He must finish the race. Like Jesus, he goes despite the warnings from his disciples. Like Jesus, he desires the unity of the church. He's willing to die. And like Jesus who prayed, if there's any other way, Paul concludes, not my will, not my self-preservation, not my comfort, but let the will of the Lord be done. It's a a two to three day walk into Jerusalem. It's been five years since his last visit there. And once again, he meets with with James. James is is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He meets with him and the and the other leaders there. And like the last time, the, the Jewish Christians, they're struggling. They're struggling with the idea of unity. How they can possibly be one with those, with those who don't hold to their Jewish customs and culture. It's been a debate since the beginning. One that actually continues to this day through a a pseudo-Christian group like the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't know if you've heard of that. But it's amazing. It sounds just like this. In chapter 15, it was a controversy about circumcision. Where some of the Jews were, were teaching directly that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas argued against this teaching, and eventually the question was brought to the apostles, the elders of the church in Jerusalem. This is the the Jerusalem council, and just like we'll see in chapter 21, Paul comes before them now. He, He comes and describes, like he did before, he describes how God has been at work through his missionary journeys, that many Gentiles are being saved and these churches are being planted and it's wonderful news. And once again, Paul 
Paul says all that God is doing, once again, they rejoice. There's, there's a unity between the James and these leaders of the Jerusalem church. There's a unity between them and Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles the, concerning the gospel. But quickly, you'll, we'll see as we read, so quickly the conversation moves from rejoicing to concern. Concern over these false rumors that are being spread about Paul's teaching and that, that he's going around telling, telling and teaching the Jews to forsake Moses and their Jewish customs. So there's, there's unity evidenced by their rejoicing over the gospel going out to the Gentile world. There's unity because they, they all know what Jesus told them to do. That they are to be witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And that Paul comes with representatives. Let's remember that. He comes with these representatives from various Gentile churches in spite of the warnings. And and we can imagine that what they gathered these, these gifts. And we can imagine they just plopped down these bags of coins of of money to help their needy brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They're striving for unity. Paul, one of the main purposes that brought Paul here was to bring this gift. This is coming from Gentiles to Jewish believers. There's unity. But it's interesting that Luke, he doesn't even mention the gift. And I don't think it means that Not necessarily. It doesn't mean that they are ungrateful. But I think it speaks to the primary concern going on. One that overshadows this effort of love and unity. In the midst of a unified praise to God, the narrative just quickly moves to these false rumors about Paul. A way for for him to show that He's not opposed to Jewish customs. They suggest something for him to do. So I want to appreciate, I want to appreciate how complicated this must have been. How difficult it is for us really to relate to this kind of transition. This is a massive transition going on in the first century. A transition from living under an old covenant with a long and rich history and then entering into a new covenant with with a people who not only don't share your history and traditions, but a people that you've learned to hate. A people you've been told to to be separate from, to consider unclean. Gentiles who, who, yes, could become Jewish proselytes by adhering to to their ways and submitting themselves to, to rituals and the law. But apart from this, they were told to avoid. What we tend to identify with when we, when we read about this, we identify more with from the perspective of the Gentiles. And, and so we can look at this and maybe obviously oversimplify it, thinking, why can't the Jews just be nice? <laughs> Why can't they be gracious? And why can't everyone just get along here? But these traditions, they're so deeply rooted 
traditions that aren't just a matter of race and culture, but, but all wrapped up into their religion. It's a huge change. And let's face it, we don't like change, do we? We don't like change. We don't, we don't like, um, we love our traditions. We get, a, we get a really small, microscopic taste of this with our family traditions around Thanksgiving and Christmas. We, we have years, we have years of meeting at the same place, right? Having the same foods and traditions. Is, is, it, is, it, is it turkey in November and December? Or do you go with ham or, or roast on Christmas Day? Who makes what? Who brings the side dishes or pie? We've got to have mom's apple pie. We've got to have dad make the, the dressing, right? And then somebody goes and gets all creative and smokes the turkey. And we think, why do you go and do that? We always roast the turkey in the oven. Why do you put those little, those little crispy onions in the green beans? We never do that. And are those, are those yams or sweet potatoes? And what's with the marshmallows here? Come on. We have, we have our traditions. And then all of this becomes really difficult, right? It becomes really difficult when you get married and you discover that your wife actually has a family too. Oh, and they have their own traditions. How do you manage? And after years of figuring that out and managing that, one of your kids gets married. And there's just too many places to meet. Do you pick different days? Do you rotate years? It's so difficult to change our traditions. And yet, these are nothing. Nothing compared to the thousands of years of traditions that have to do with your race and your religion. So I want to appreciate just how difficult it must have been for Jews to worship with Gentiles. And what a threat it was to their identity. Think of the, the diaspora Jews, the Jews who are, who are scattered among the nations, right? Right? And, and they come to Christ. They come to Christ through Paul's missionary journeys to Gentiles and establishing Gentile churches. So, so here we have a diaspora-believing Jew in places like Asia and Ephesus. And they're a part of a new church that's, that's primarily primarily and foundationally made up of Gentiles. And instead of meeting in the synagogue on the Sabbath, now you're meeting in a home on Sunday. It's the same scriptures, along with a greater clarity from the teachings of the apostles, but now you're in the minority. And they're not doing the things that you're accustomed to doing. And they're your brothers. And sisters. So once again, Paul, he comes before the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, striving for unity, dealing with these same ongoing struggles. So with this in mind, let's, let's read. And, and, and it's our tradition 
if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. So let's, let's do that. Uh, Acts 21, beginning at verse 15. Luke writes, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in obedience of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He had once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is God's word. You may be seated. People are crying out, away with him. Wanting to kill him. 
And we're meant to think of another crowd, aren't we? Shouting the same thing. And like every narrative, like every story that's written, every, every movie that's made, we need to appreciate that the author must pick and choose what parts of the story, what details he or she wants to tell. There's a, there's a reason, a purpose, an underlying message. For example, when the Apostle John writes his gospel, he tells us that Jesus did a lot of other things that aren't written here. And he chose what he did for a purpose, saying that purpose is these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a purpose of why John picked what he chose to put into his gospel. And Luke's purpose is that he wants us to see, he wants us to see fulfillment and have certainty about who Jesus is. In Acts, he begins by saying, in the first book, that is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days And speaking about the kingdom of God. There's fulfillment in what Jesus did. Fulfillment concerning a big theme in Acts. A big theme which is the kingdom of God. It's a theme of of its beginning and spread. And there's an ongoing struggle against what's going on, isn't there? We see it over and over and over again. Zealous Jews who cling to their traditions. All throughout Acts, there's this, this, new, this new breaking into the old. A new work of the Spirit at Pentecost, and then subsequent works of the Spirit in Pentecost-like movements. Something new is happening here, and then Peter ties it to Joel. It's a fulfillment of that. It's the new covenant There are healings that show a new authority. They're accustomed to the authority of the temple and the temple authorities and the priests. There's a new authority being established in Acts. A new authority shown by these healings, authenticated by Jesus, that they are the new authority. New leaders, new leaders of a new people of God. Not replacing, but Jesus is the true Israel. And all who, are, who believe in him through faith are grafted into him. So, to emphasize the, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, Acts begins by retelling the eyewitness account of Jesus' ascension. Jesus' ascension. I think something that we... That we Don't consider enough. Don't consider the significance of this enough. But it's hugely significant because Luke not only ends his gospel with it, but then begins the second book of Acts with the ascension. Luke wants us to see that the the coming of Christ is the climax of history, a massive event, and that his his ascension, you know, all the focus is, is, 
rightly on the cross and the resurrection. And then as we get to the ascension, it's like, eh. No. The ascension, it's not simply Jesus going away and we're waiting for him to come again someday. It's his ascent as he comes to his throne. It's the inauguration of the kingdom of God. It's massively significant. Everything changes because of it. It's a new age. The Old Testament tells the story, right? It's, a, it's, it's all the fulfillment of the story of redemption. The Old Testament tells the story of the, of the fall of man and God's promise of grace to redeem a people for himself. It tells us of, of a line, a lineage. Remember in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who's at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And then all throughout scripture, these two sides are at battle with one another, enmity with one another. This line, the seed of the woman, leads to God's promised Messiah who's going to crush the head of the serpent, defeat sin and death. And in the new, we see the reality of this. In the new, we see in the New Testament, we see the reality of this and that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. In the ascension, Luke wants us to see the exaltation of Jesus and to connect this with Daniel's vision that says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given, given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. All His dominion, it's an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus didn't just go away for a time waiting to establish his kingdom someday. No, he, he ascended with the clouds to a throne that's above, that's greater than any physical throne in Jerusalem. It's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, where all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. The beginning of this kingdom, it is the spread of the gospel out from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And here we are, here we are, 2,000 years later. Why? Well, because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. Try as they might, as zealous as they may be, this kingdom can never be destroyed. So Luke begins Acts with an emphasis of the beginning of a new era, a new kingdom, with King Jesus establishing a new authority structure by commissioning his apostles to be his physical representatives, spreading his kingdom out from Jerusalem to encompass all nations and all peoples. He's given authority to his apostles. And this authority is made evident through signs and wonders. That's the purpose of those signs and wonders. A theme throughout Acts has to do with this, this change of authority and the, the inevitable conflicts that come. Again, there's this, 
this overlap of the old age and the, this old age that's passing away with a new that's being established. The Jewish age, with its types and shadows, it pointed to the coming king. And now that he's come and is seated on the throne, there are aspects of the law that continue in better ways and other aspects that God sovereignly changes or even abolishes. The moral law continues in that it reveals the perfect holiness of God and what's required of us to be in his presence. It's a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us our sin and most importantly concerning the gospel, our need. It shows us our need of a savior, that we fail in every way. And we rejoice in the truth that that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law where everyone else has failed. And in doing so, he alone has earned the righteousness that can be imputed or, or counted, reckoned to be yours, belonging to us when we look to him in faith. So the law, it's beautiful. It points us to God and what Christ has done for us. And as those who are now indwelt by his spirit, we're being sanctified. We're being conformed into the image of Christ, loving and worshiping God by living lives of obedience to him. Because we want to please him, not to earn anything, but we love him and we want to please him. We belong to him. He's working this in us. So this aspect of the law, it's both fulfilled in Christ and tells us how to respond in love to God as we desire to be like him. But then other aspects of the law cease in their fulfillment. The ceremonial aspects of the law that had to do with washings and sacrifices, they pointed to our need to be clean. Well, in Christ, you are clean. It is fulfilled. They told us of our, of our need for atonement, that sin is deserving of death, of shedding, shedding of blood, and that God's wrath can be appeased through a substitute sacrifice. But the, but the parts of the law that had to do with the sacrifices, well, they're not meant to continue because it's done. Jesus said, it is finished. It's accomplished by the one and only sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. There are civil and ceremonial and dietary laws that are abolished because of the new, this new context, a new covenant, because the new has come. And what God calls clean, right? We read about that earlier. Peter's big lesson. What God calls clean, we should not call unclean. So some aspects, primarily the moral law, continue with a right understanding and practice, while other aspects of the law were meant for a different covenant and context, finding, ultimately finding their yes in Jesus. So back in Acts 21, there's this conflict having to do with, with the law. False accusations saying Paul is teaching them to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children or walk according to Jewish customs. And of course, Paul is, Paul is not doing this. He is not forsaking Moses because Moses points us to Jesus. 
And the sad reality is that those who forsake Jesus are the ones who are actually forsaking Moses as well. This is Stephen's point in his sermon in chapter 7. Peter in chapter 3 who said, who said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Of course, he's speaking of Christ. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, who does not listen to Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. They elevate the law and Moses, but if they really believed it, they'd listen to Moses, who tells them of a greater prophet to come. Paul, Paul, he wants unity in Christ, and yet there's this, this ongoing struggle because they insist upon hanging on to what? Types and shadows. To things like the temple. And the authority of its priests and leaders. While, while the temple was never meant to be some permanent dwelling place of God. No, it's a picture. It was a picture of something so much better. Something that points to the very incarnation of God. Who took on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And who now indwells us with his so much better. Luke gives us these temple scenes in Acts. And I think what he wants us to see is to show us the failure and the inadequacy of the old. And that the power and authority is with King Jesus. In chapter 3, we know, we know this, that the man who was lame, in chapter 3, it's by the, it's by the name, the authority of Jesus that the lame man who sits daily for years at the gate of the temple where he's healed. A man who was, who was actually prevented from worship because of his disability is now accepted and made whole by the authority of Jesus. So much better. The temple fails. Jesus and the gospel is better. But those who hang on to the old... Question Peter, asking by what it, it's it's amazing, right? This man is healed, and they're by what authority do you do such things? Really? By what by whose authority do you dare do something so wonderful as this? They're threatened because they want to hang on to their own authority and authority that that actually prevented the man's worship because of his disability. But now with Jesus as king, he's healed, he's made whole, and he enters into worship. And this very intentional description is given by Luke. Is, is that the man who was once lame? He's now walking and leaping and praising God. And it's intentional because it's another evidence of the kingdom of God that's been ushered in at the coming of Jesus. It's evidence of a new era. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that spoke of a day of blessing to come. Well, it's come. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We saw it 
also in the ministry of Jesus. It's the message from Isaiah that, that Jesus sent to John the Baptist, who was imprisoned and doubting. Should we look for another? And Jesus said to his disciples, go tell John what you've seen and heard. Again, Isaiah, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cling, cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In Acts, we see the king commissioning his apostles to go and give more evidence that the time of blessing has come. And now in chapter 21, the Jewish leaders, they're offended. And they miss the blessing of Jesus. In hanging on to the temple and its passing authority, they lose both the old and the new. The type and its reality. The, the physical structure and system which is going to be destroyed in 70 AD and the cornerstone of the temple. The embodiment of it in the person of Jesus and his church. Luke shows us this transition from the old to the new and the repeated struggle of those who are described in verse 20 as being zealous Zealous for the law. A description that Paul gives of himself when he was a persecutor of the church. And in their zeal, they falsely accuse Paul of teaching Jews to forsake their laws and customs. But, but what have we seen? What have we seen of Paul? Nowhere does Paul teach Jews to abandon their customs. In fact, we even see Paul having Timothy circumcised in chapter 16. And he does this not as a matter of salvation. And that's the real point. It's not inconsistent at all. Not as a matter of salvation, but as a matter of custom. Timothy's mom, if you remember, his mom was a Jew. His dad, now believed to be dead, was a Greek man who apparently prevented her from circumcising their son. And so now, as a man, Timothy would have been regarded as an apostate Jew. No Jew would have listened to him. So coming along with Paul on this missionary journey, Paul, for the sake of being all things to all people, for the sake of the gospel, to avoid any barriers to the gospel, has Timothy circumcised. Not as a matter of salvation, but custom. So the evidence is totally against the accusations, the false accusations against Paul. Paul's argument, it was never to tell Jewish Christians to stop being Jewish. His argument was always about the clarity of the gospel, that salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. Neither Jews nor Gentiles need to abandon their traditions in order to be saved, is the point. The Jerusalem Council, well, they, they agreed to this. They agreed that Gentiles didn't need to become Jews. They didn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. But then they sent, then they sent that letter that's restated here in, in verse 25. Remember, they, sent, they agree with Paul and Barnabas. You don't need to, it's Christ alone. Not adding, nothing is added to his work as a matter of salvation. But then this letter, but, 
As for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And at first, this just this seems really confusing. Which is it? Initially, it's confusing as if they've concluded salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then let's add these four things that look like the law. But instead, really what they are, instead of having to do with the law, what they're about, what they have in common, what they're about is pagan worship. In essence, they're saying Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. Just as there are Jewish Christians, there's also such a category as Gentile Christians. We're all one. But there's no such thing as a pagan Christian. Paganism is a concern because it's a part of their culture. And from this, from this paganism, you must abstain. Your identity, it can be an Asian Christian, a Greek Christian, a Roman Christian. These are not contrary to Christ, but pagan idolatry is. Your race doesn't matter, but your identity as a sinner does. This is Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6. He writes, Do you not know that the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This, is, this list, it doesn't have to do with various cultures. Paul doesn't say no Gentile will inherit the kingdom, but this is who you once were. He doesn't, that's not the term. No, it has to do with sin. Identity in race or culture is not contrary to the kingdom, but identity with sin is contrary. And we must abstain from it because we have a new identity in Christ. Concerning this sin, we don't say, we don't say this is my identity. This, this is just who I am. I am a Christian thief. A Christian idolater. Uh, I'm a pagan Christian. Paul says, no. If your identity is in Christ, then these other sinful identities are who you once were. But you've been changed. Your identity is in Christ. Then Jesus, Jesus has washed you and declared you to be righteous. His spirit is sanctifying you, conforming you into his likeness. Race and culture are not barriers to the kingdom of God. So if people want to circumcise their babies as a matter of tradition, no problem. But it's not a matter of salvation. This is what Paul taught. This is, this is what Paul did. 
Out of a love for his people and a desire for clarity and unity, he follows the counsel. Now he follows this counsel of James and the elders and he pays for it and he participates to some extent with a purification rite in the temple. Apparently these four men were under some kind of Nazarite vow. They're finishing it up and there's a, there's a purification process going on. So, so Paul wants to show a graciousness towards this, paying for it, participating in it, hoping that the Jews are, will see this is the hope anyway of James and the elders and suggesting this is the hope. The Jews are going to see this and, and see that he's not opposed to Jewish customs and traditions after all. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what's going on here, about the details of, of this observance and whether Paul's compromising in some way. But it's hard for me to imagine, hard for me to imagine that he actually is compromising because he's, he's continually, he's so consistently even putting his life in danger for the sake of the gospel, making a defense of it. So... It's hard for me to imagine he's compromised in, in doing what he does. His intentions are good. They were for unity and a clarity of the gospel. But the Spirit's warnings, remember the warnings along the way? Well, they came true, didn't they? This is what we see. Likely the ones who have been following Paul from city to city trying to kill him. Remember this, this group of Jews just... Going from, you know, rioting and stoning him in one city, leaving him for dead. And Paul gets up and goes somewhere else and they hear of it and they're, they're following him all over the place. So likely this, this group that, that's come for, uh, uh, for the feast that's going on, come to Jerusalem. They're like, there's Paul! Get him! They see Paul, and they create this other riot, these false accusations. There's, there's this fulfillment in that Paul is bound. And even though it's the Romans who actually are rescuing him, he's handed over to them, which is what was prophesied would occur. Well, what do we learn from this? Unity. Unity is a valuable thing. We must strive for unity. It's a it's a priority of the church. It's consistent with the gospel. Jesus, he prayed that this would be true of us, that we would be one. And Paul, he traveled many miles, gathered many gifts, these generous gifts, putting himself in, into awkward situations, and was even willing to die for the sake of of many different people and nations becoming one in Christ. But even now, amazing, even now, 2,000 years later, um, I guess it's been going on for a while. I just recently became aware of it. John's been telling me about it for months, this movement within Christian circles that that attacks the unity of the church in a way that's that's. You know, the more I was hearing about it, I was like, man, this is Acts. <laughs> this, is a, this, is, this is what's going on in these attacks in the first century. I mentioned it earlier, this, this Hebrew roots movement. 
And some of you are familiar with it. Some of you even know people who have who've been sucked into this. And as one of your pastors who cares about your soul, I want to warn you and encourage you, avoid it like the plague. Avoid it. It's a, it's a movement, really, to be more accurate. It's a cult. It's a cult because like every cult, they say, you know, the Christian church, it's apostate. And we alone have the, the truth. That's, whenever you hear any group speak that way, <laughs> run. What's ironic is that what does this group do? They insist, they insist upon a return to Jewish culture and practices. A return to Jewish culture and practices. And that this is a requirement not only for Jewish Christians, but non-Jewish as well. In essence, they insist upon Gentiles to become Jewish. Adhering to Jewish customs and feasts and aspects of the law that we have rightly seen as fulfilled in Christ. It's ironic. It's sad. It's ironic that, that, that they appeal. They appeal to a return to first century faith. Sounds so good, doesn't it? And yet, the history given by Luke in the book of Acts shows that their movement is a return to, to a first century faith. Sadly, it's, it's that divisive, zealous group of Judaizers. That's what they look like. That's what they're appealing for. These, this group that falsely accused Paul of forsaking Moses. And that's what they say today. You're forsaking Moses. You're forsaking the law. You need to do these feasts and dietary laws and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they're a very zealous group that's very wrong about the Bible and the purpose of the law and thus the gospel. As for us, seek true unity in Christ's church. And the example we should follow, going back to Acts, we saw it early on, the example that we follow is we need to be a people who are devoted, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teachings, the New Testament that clarifies the whole Bible, brings it to light, devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings, to prayer, and to fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we pray for such devotion. That we would be a people who love your word. A people who, who see the apostles' teachings, that is, the New Testament, as, as clarifying and authoritative concerning your plan of redemption and, and how we're to live Lord, make us one. Build unity and grant us grace to, to love one another in the, in the midst of non-essential areas of preference. May we be iron sharpening iron, building up instead of tearing down. So, Lord, we give thanks for this time of worship, for the food and fellowship that follows. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.